Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Adloyd. How do we actually grieve for someone? How does it change and evolve as we get older? My dad died when I was 15 and it took me many, many years to be able to express what I had gone through. So I decided to create Griefcast, a chance to talk, share and laugh about the weirdness of grief, death, pain and agony but with comedians so it's not that depressing i promise it's bleak but you'll laugh as well which for me is a perfect night in each week on griefcast i talk to a different comedian about their own personal experience of grief as we remember someone special that they had lost along the way it's not easy to talk about death but it does help if you've chosen a career designed to hide your true feelings about anything emotional whether it was long ago or you've just lost someone, we've cast us a chance to talk about the peculiar human process of death. Thank you so much for listening. If you have been enjoying the show, please do subscribe or rate us on iTunes. It helps other people to find the podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at The Griefcast, email us thegriefcast at gmail.com and we are now on Instagram at The Griefcast, where you can find some cheery grief memes I've been making because I noticed there weren't any. This week I'm talking to comedian and documentary maker Jack Rook. Jack created the show Good Grief, all about his dad's death, and if you're listening to this in June 2017, it is on at the Soho Theatre in London this week. Jack came in to talk to me about making art out of his dad's death and about his next show, Happy Hour, about his friend's suicide. As ever, cheerier than it sounds. Hello and welcome to... Go. Hello! <laughs> Hello and welcome to Griefcast. I'm here today with writer and comedian Jack Rook. So, Jack, thank you for coming to Griefcast. Thanks for having me. I have known about you, Jack before I think I sort of met you because we are fellow mm. people who talk about grief. <laughs> yeah, I remember you wrote something for, I think it was maybe Standard Issue. Oh, maybe, yeah, about talking to people. Yeah, I loved it so much. Oh, bless and you. And then I became a fangirl. Oh, bless you. I was like, it was a really lovely article actually because it was, there. it wasn't, you were kind of very... Um, sincere in a way where you flagged it you were like as a comedian I'm not going to try and make this like hilarious I'm going to talk about something and like but but it was really lovely because I think sometimes people find that an awkward juxtaposition to go from like funny person to 
yeah, it's, speaking about it. It's hard. So I wrote an article for Standard Issue magazine, which only exists as a podcast now. And it was about how to talk to people who are grieving. But it is very hard to go from funny to talking about grief. It is, I think. Yeah. But, but I think if you've experienced it, you're like okay with it. Because yeah. you're like, it's not some of it's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> like that's yeah. okay. I think it's all about ownership of that as mm. well. Like if you own the fact that some of it isn't funny and yeah. some of it there is no sort of um humor that you can drag up but i i'm i mean like i'm like a total psychopath and i, I like love really dark awkward humor jokes like yeah yeah my like favorite joke of all time that isn't like an actual amazing joke dad this was a shit joke if you're listening but in the week in between sort of my dad getting diagnosed with cancer and dying like i remember us waking up in the morning and me being like what do you want for breakfast and him being like, oh, I don't know what's happening. And I was like, what do you want? Come on, hurry up. <laughs> and he went, could I have a tuna fish sandwich, please? <laughs> and I was like, great. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that leads me to who are we specifically remembering today then? Well, <laughs> this well, is You've given the game away. I've got, I've, got, I've got a lot. I've got a lot, unfortunately. Okay. I, th- I feel like I've... That's I've right. Spent, this is the place to have a lot. This is the place yeah. to have a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think... So I'm 23. Are you only 23? I'm 23. Oh my goodness me. But half of, I'd say half of my life and all of my adult life has been really quite affected by grief. Yeah, Or at least yeah. it's been sort of quite heavily um, bogged down in it. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so when I was 15, my dad died quite suddenly of cancer. Snap. Um, yeah. <laughs> Snap. So we're in the we talk <laughs> yeah. about being in the club, but this is a we're super nice because oh we were both fifteen. We, should we see how sudden each other's? I uh, I think yours maybe sounds more sudden. How I sudden was yours? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> see. Well, my dad was diagnosed. No, well, it was literally a case of he was diagnosed on the eighteenth of September two thousand eight, and then died on the twenty eighth of September two thousand eight. So it was like ten days. What? It was the most mental mad peculiar sort of um, my god sorry my mask because mine is not so he was diagnosed in february and dead by the april which i always held up as like super quick but you are you're winning (laughs) you're winning in terms of it so was he ill beforehand yeah he'd he'd been ill since about the july okay and they had since my summer in between my gcse's and i remember him sort of starting to be quite poorly and i was having to cancel a holiday and right and and then it was like he was sort of fine and then he'd have moments of being okay and moments of not. And they just didn't know? No one quite knew what was going on? They were doing loads and loads of tests. He had like an abscess. He had like, I think this is quite common with sort of late cancer diagnosis, but he had another medical issue going on. Yes, that's that what happened with us. Disguised yeah. you know, the fact that there was a massive tumour going in his back. And like, oh. it was a really sort of strange time. But then at the same time, I sort of count it as a bit of a blessing in disguise. Like there's no, like, and you know, there's no positive way of yeah. going through cancer. But I think for my dad, it was, and for all of us and all of our family, it was something that was in our lives for ten days. Wow. Yeah. And you know, it's it's bizarre. You know, it's particularly bizarre because sort of like afterwards, when I was sort of teenager and I got put into sort of group 
bereavement counselling with other young people because that's what they do and you're like there's a real stop gap in the services between like the ages of about 14 and 17 yes I can't agree with you yeah like this is what I've talked about before because (laughs) I was I was offered child counselling because they said you're (laughs) under 16 so I don't know if I've talked about this I went to a room with mini chairs (laughs) and was given some pencils and a piece of paper and there was a doll's house and she was like you know do you want to and I was like what the fuck I'm 15 no No. so I walked out of it like I was like I can't I refuse this is literally identical to me but you went to group counselling that sounds like a group kiddie one where I was like the oldest one there and everyone else and you're so big aren't you compared to everybody oh no I was sort of sat there (laughs) and uh, everyone else is like yeah my mum's had cancer since I was six my mum's had cancer since I was like and I was literally there like dad died in 10 days and I'm three years older than all of you and that's what I get so frustrated but yeah it makes mm. such a difference because 12 to 15 there's a huge difference of what you understand and how you feel about stuff I really feel like Mm. there's this gap like you said between 14 and 17 that they don't know what to do with you Yeah, because they're like well we can't treat you like a child but equally you're not you're not an adult you can't really grasp what's going on. It's. I think it's what makes it sort of one of the hardest ages to go to go through an experience like that because you're you're at a period of like identity yeah. formation anyway, and I think it's it's really disruptive. And then when there is like a lack of help in terms of what 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 they direct to you, you sort of DIY it. Like yeah. I know I sort of sort of. Oh yeah, you have to, don't you? you, you have to go. Well, this do. is this like, is shit. So, yeah. uh, so you went to group. How many times did oh, you once. go? Oh, I only went once as well. <laughs> I went once, and I was like, I said to my mum, "I'm never going again." Never. And did your? So have was, you got brothers and sisters? I've got two brothers, and they're much older. So you know, my oldest brother was thirty six when my brother when my dad died. Wow. And my middle brother was twenty nine. Okay, so, so they were a lot older. Yeah. Did they go to counselling? I think, yeah, they definitely... Adult yeah, counselling. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's a strange one because they sort of fell apart a lot more than I did immediately. You know, I think I sort of... I don't know. I think I was... I, I, I was sort of too young to understand the administrative mind fuck of grief. Yeah, I so agree So I was just you, yeah. sort of like there. But then at the same time... I was old enough that, like, I became an adult overnight. Yeah. Like, I think oh I skipped from, like, 15 to 18. Yeah. I, I just jumped. I felt like I went from 15 to 45. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I'm now an old woman. Now I know Now I know that life is, it can go at any point. Yeah. Oh, well. And it affects your friendships with oh, everyone at that God, age. Jack, it affects, is... like, <laughs> yes. it just changes your outlook and everything. I remember not being able to, like, go on sort of, like, sort of like nights out around no. houses anymore because I was like the shit you're chatting about it's is so bullshit. boring it's such bullshit <laughs> it's that oh my god because that's so I was it was just before my GCSEs because I'm like younger in the year if that makes sense yeah, so my birthday's August birthday? August <gasps> July the 29th I just turned 15 right okay so yeah I was nearly 16 so yeah. I was in the April and then and I remember so yeah it was GCSE time and you know people going out and talking shit and getting stoned and getting a fake ID oh my god and I'd just been on the cusp of sort of enjoying that and being like oh cool we'll go out and then I remember mm. exactly the same thing sitting there going you're all mad you're all bullshit who cares what skirt you're wearing of yeah. suddenly makes everything seem so pointless mm. did you I remember the biggest thing for me which I really <laughs> struggle with is like how I felt so isolated like I felt so lonely because I felt like people just my friends didn't yeah. understand I mean I've 
felt like I had boy whose dad that I'd written on my forehead. Oh, God, yeah. I felt like I could walk into classrooms and if I wanted to, I could zap people dead with my mouth or <laughs> something like that. Weird hot chip video. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> over my mouth and kill people. It was a bizarre one. I remember once walking into, like, my maths class and I was quite late and these two guys were, like, blocking the door with the table and they were, like, joking about. And then someone went, no, it's Jack Rook. And they, like, immediately got the table out the way and, like, opened the door for me. Oh, my God. It's um, <laughs> just sort of like, oh, you're bullying the kid. His dad's just yeah, died. Leave and him alone. probably gay. Be nice to him. <laughs> he might break. <laughs> That's a nice school, though, that they were, like, I mean, don't sometimes go for it. they were nice. Sometimes. But I think that was sort of bizarre because... Being 15, you just presume that you're going to be, like, loved and adored Mm. until you're, like, an adult and then you're, like, (laughs) your brother's age and then maybe you have, like, your first row with your parents and you're, like, like, especially when you are, you know, I was definitely, I wasn't ever, like, a sort of wrapped up in cotton child. Like, you know, we'd, I definitely came from working class parents who'd really grafted and really taught me to sort of, the importance of community and the importance of you know being proud and all that sort of stuff and I don't I don't think childhood was an easy sale but definitely the five years leading up to my dad's death when sort of my parents both had jobs and everything was going quite well and Mm. we had a really nice house and like we were like pretty good up until that point I was like I'm untouchable yeah like what's gonna what could ever affect and then dad dying was like The only analogy I can think of is it's like a table and a magician has like ripped the cloth. That is what I always say, Jack. Everything's crashed down, like nothing stayed up. Oh, that is what I, I'm sorry, I've got goose. That's what I always say. Yeah, I say it's like someone pulled the tablecloth. (laughs) But for me, it was like everything was up, but in a different place. Like, it doesn't feel right. Yes, I can. Oh my God. It's so weird. I don't think I've spoken to anyone who's lost their dad exactly the same age for us. We'll start a club. Oh, yeah, this is the new. Club within the club. DDC. Yeah, yeah. Well, we talk about the Dead Dad Club or Dead Mum Club, but the Dead Dad at 15 Club is is very niche. Dead Dad at 15 is like, Dead Dad Club's like the O2, and Dead Dad (laughs) Club at 15 is like Indigo 2, like that small space. We're like the niche club. But I completely, completely understand. I had a very stable childhood up until then, and... My dad's family were very involved in my life and like my grandparents lived around the mm. corner. And to me, I was like, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Like I just remember sunshine and playing in the garden and yeah. my big brother being around. And, and then literally my dad died and six months later my grandpa died and then like the family fell apart. And, yeah. Yeah, completely fell apart. And yeah, then I was like, oh, I was an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> like, I had no clue <laughs> about what was going on. You, you, it is the cruelest slap in the face it's such a slap isn't it it's, it's like, such a slap and you feel like you know in films when a Victorian child has to learn a lesson or something and they get slapped <laughs> and then secretly watching it you're like they deserved it <laughs> and I feel like you're you're so sh- I mean for me the biggest thing was I was in shock for such a long time Yeah, that's why I think I didn't deal with it that's why I'm amazed that you're 23 because Jack does a show about has done a show which is on at the Soho Theatre this month about the grief because I could not have done a show about it Mm. I I couldn't even vocalise it at 23 so I'm so impressed that do you know what I think (laughs) I think one it comes to a place of being super ignorant and two it comes from a place of like the show is a bit of a mistake (laughs) so tell us about the show what happens in the show I'm not I'm not trained in sort of performing arts or anything I, I studied journalism right 
so I wanted to always make documentaries. That's sort of what my oh. sort of um, passion was as a kid. And when I was finishing up uni, I got on this sort of scholarship to study journalism, and they basically... It was amazing, actually, because, like, it's the one perk of dad dying is that I got a free university degree. And I sort of studied documentary, then the final year they were like, you've got the opportunity to make a project. And I was like, well, I want to make a documentary about grief, and I want to make it with my nan, because my nan, who's my dad's mum, was 80 when he died. And I feel like all those things that we've just spoken Mm. about, that feeling of loneliness, that feeling of isolation, that feeling of it being like a smack around the face, that feeling of, you know, that kind of awkward fear the exact same applies to the elderly of when course they yeah. lose someone that isn't the norm to lose yeah and i think my nan very much felt like after my dad died that you know people would ask her about her friends that had died because mm. naturally in your 80s that happens but no one would ever ask her about her son yeah and because it's you know it's Jade Adams has a really. Me and Jade Adams have spoken a lot about grief, and I remember her. Who's J- Jade to come on and did the yeah, show? Yeah. yeah. She told me how, like, if you lose a parent, you're an orphan, and then if you lose a partner, you're a widow. But if you lose a child, there's no word for it because yeah. it's not supposed to happen. Mm. And you know that was definitely what my nan felt like. Cause the whole world was saying this wasn't supposed to have happened to you. Yeah. And so we're not going to talk to you about it. And she got that from all areas of life from the sort of medical support world to like her mates to sort of community like it was just not spoken about and i and i've sort of felt like that was the most crushingly sad thing ever because it's like she wants to remember her son Mm. even though he was 55 and still her baby and still her firstborn child and and even you know there's a great sadness that we lost our dads at 15 but then that isn't a you know it isn't crazy for for a, a, a parents to die like you said it, yeah. it, but I think for yeah obviously people losing children at whatever age is yeah that's what happened. my grandpa is he died six months after my dad and he just went it's just not right that's all he could say for months yeah. it's just not right it's just not right carry out and I was like that's, that's all there is what there's no words for it your poor yeah. nan as well no one was willing to it's a bizarre because my my granddad then stopped talking about it. And then, basically, I, I definitely think, and you know, I've done research on this myself, but he got dementia sort of the year after, and I definitely yeah. think the pain and the sort of trauma of it all triggered mm, it. Yeah. And his brain just wiped it, and, you know, it's the, probably the only bit in good grief that I still, even though I've done the show since 2015, I still croak up at is my nan sort of speaking about my granddad's dementia and having to explain to him on a sort of bi-weekly basis like him saying why doesn't Lawrence come around anymore and her being like well he died and re-explaining the funeral and for me that was you know something that I wanted to document in this documentary idea that I had and so me and my nan after my dad died as well and this is something that I would recommend people doing after my dad died I felt like I missed his voice yeah. so much. I missed all those stories. I missed all those like amazing, life-affirming wisdom that passes down. And so with my nan, I was like, fuck it, you ain't dying without giving me all your juice. <laughs> so yes. I bothered the shit out of her uh, for about three years and always put dictaphones in front oh, of her face. Yeah. She loves it. Like, I think the whole sort of, um, in the show, you can sort of, 
when she's like the whole show is structured around these documentary inserts and she's sort of like at the beginning really awkward and then she's like in there <laughs> but yes yeah, so it started off being a documentary and I was I had I compiled all of this stuff and all of this footage and basically didn't have enough money to, <laughs> to make it together basically did a gig actually um and a woman from the arts council came and at the time I was doing like really weird stand-up poetry and so I did this gig and this woman from the arts council came up and she was chatting she was like what do you want to do you've got a very interesting sort of voice you're not putting on a spoken word for it she was like you're actually like <laughs> doing poems and it sounds like you the whole time which is quite refreshing and I was like well I want to make a documentary but I've not got any money and then she said what about fusing your poems and the show and wow. the clips and making a show and I was like see people the arts okay. council yeah <laughs> it does good work oh my god yeah believe it or not then <laughs> And then I ended up joining the Soho Theatre Comedy Lab. Okay, and, yeah. And um, just naturally it then became sort of like me putting these comedy sort of stories. And I've sort of stopped doing doing poetry stuff and it was just sort of comedy stories and then the clips, the films clips, and we just sort of built this show. And it, so it all happened by a mistake. So you took it to Edinburgh in 2015. 15. And it did incredibly well. That's when I first heard about it. And again, yeah, I think at the time... I wasn't wasn't doing anything about grief at all, and again, I was very like I found it very like oh god, someone's talking about in the show about like you know it's like yeah. oh my god, which I, I remember I didn't go and see it because I was like I'm really afraid of mm. being very upset by it. Yeah, a lot of people um, which is great came like, up to me after a few actually a lot of other comedians. I think it was Spencer Jones came up to me oh, at Latitude yeah. and was like. I loved your poster for it and I really wanted to see it, but I was just, like, frightened. Yeah, which is um, so... People say that to me now about the podcast, like, oh, I don't want to listen to it. I'm like, oh, no, but it's not... But you're it's not going to cry. you think if you're going to go and sit in something that's mildly relative towards death, you'll walk out there and die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <you like>, <laughs> if I die after this podcast, yeah. I'm blaming you. But, but, and that's sort of fine as well, and we... Soho Theatre and me, we sort of developed the idea, and I was very much guided into putting it in the theatre section. Yes, which I do I think remember. Was like the yeah, best yeah. idea we had. But yeah, I remember hearing so much about it, and it did so well that first year. Did, was there always a, a sadness at the success? Do you know what I mean? Because of where it came from, or because of the, you, what your nan's talking about? Did you ever have that moment of like. Well, oh. it's an interesting question to ask me right now, actually, because I'm making my new show yes. at the moment. So right, the new show is called Happy Hour, mm-hmm. and I'm taking it up to Edinburgh this year. This year, oh great! I'm talking about, you know, my friend Ollie, who said so. Like, the second massive upheaval death was my friend Ollie, who I met at university that I was quite close with, especially when I was at uni. The year I graduated, he took his own life. Oh god! And um, that was like. You know, that was I was twenty one, so it was it was March twenty fifteen. Mm. So it was just as I was developing the wow. grief. And that one was a completely weird one because um it was it's a totally different ballpark when you lose someone to suicide. Yeah. So the reasons why it was weird was because a friend of a, a really good friend of mine had lost her brother to suicide three years before and me and her had both become sort of ambassadors for male suicide prevention charity called Calm and done a lot of work for Calm. And my friend Ollie, me and him had spoken quite a lot about mental health and he knew about Calm and he knew about Mind and he knew about the sort of importance of opening up and talking and that sort of stuff. 
So it's weird from that perspective because when you sort of work for a male suicide prevention charity and then you lose a male friend to suicide, like, you know, your LinkedIn credentials slightly yeah. slip. <laughs> and, uh, oh, that was bizarre. And then the second reason why it was so weird is because I had spoken to Holly about 10 days before he did it. I was talking to him about good grief and was talking really quite honestly and angrily to him about how nobody... When I was trying to get it booked for Edinburgh that first year, no one cared. No like, one. Nobody yeah. gave a flying foot. <laughs> and I couldn't get it programmed anywhere. Yeah. And so the, the, the morning of... Um, I'm going to tell this story. Yeah, go for it. The morning of sort of March the 6th, I went to Calm, did a whole morning of volunteering... And no, it was the magazine. I de- started deputy editing Calm, sort of. They've got like a free men's lifestyle magazine right. with advice and tips. And, and then also it's sponsored by Top Man, so there's some cardigans in there as well. <laughs> and I was doing that, and then I was like, right, I was building myself up because at one o'clock that day I had my final Edinburgh Fringe pitch at Underbelly, wow. which is one of the sort of big paid venues in yeah. Edinburgh. And I was like, this is my last... It genuinely was my last shot. It was now like beginning of March if you haven't got your slot by then yeah, for Edinburgh it. it's, t- it's like r- like rough seas you ain't going <laughs> you ain't going and I was like I was just dedicated my whole year post-graduating to making this show to going on a whim to being like fuck it let's be a performer let's see what that's like I left calm arrived at the pitch and then as I was walking out of the tube station at Oxford Circus to walk to Underbelly's office I kept on getting this missed call from my friend Claire who's sort of also Ollie's best friend and it kept on happening, and then and then I had a voicemail, and the voicemail was, like, long. And I sort of stopped just on my way before the pitch, and I listened to it, and I knew. I just knew. Mm. Like, she didn't say, like, oh, he's done it. She was like, I need you to call me pretty soon. We need to have a chat. And so I called my mum, and I've only... Also, this is the amazing thing about grief. I've only just remembered this happening about four months ago I remember yeah. this happening and it was nearly two well, it was over two years ago the stuff that your brain just brain blanks out. out yeah I know and I called my mum and I said I think my friends killed themselves and she went don't be silly and I was like I really think my friends left me a voicemail and, and, it, and I, I just feel it I got it I've, like, I just felt it I just mm. knew and she went look go and do this pitch because you've been waiting ten months for it and if it's happened it's happened and we'll deal with it after yeah. and then I went to Underbelly and did this pitch and brought out this little pink folder I had and was like this is my show it's called Good Grief it's about my dad dying it's about putting my nan's story of loss next to my sort of teenage story and the similarities and the juxtapositions and how bad we are in Britain but it's also a comedy and there's jokes and it's about the awkwardness and embracing that I did this pitch to the two producers and I was like, oh God, I fucked that up. And then literally got to the bottom of their office in this sort of little yard bit, called Claire, and she was like, oh, he's done it. And so I found out when I was at Underbelly, which was so bizarre. It was just the most like emotionally draining thing to do that pitch yeah, after much yeah. sort of months. And then I did that and then I couldn't walk. I was like frozen to the spot. Marina, who's the producer at Underbelly, oh, yeah, came yeah. down and she was like, What's happened? And I told her, and we sort of had like a little hug and a little tear outside Underbelly's offices. And then she was like, um, Well, I have some good news. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Well, she was like, Well, you smashed that pitch. We've, we've already put you in. <laughs> My goodness. And it was the most bizarre thing. 
And it's still to this day, I think, is the most bizarre thing because it was like everything I'd worked for happening mm. and getting like the ultimate ticket and then found out about Ollie at the exact same time. I feel sort of like from that point onwards, oh, this sounds so bleak. No, this go for so it. This bleak, is the place to do it. I sort of feel like nothing I do will ever be, for me, attached to that, be like, oh, my God, amazing. This is so successful, mm. brilliant, great. Pat myself on the back. Like, it doesn't matter how many boastful Facebook statuses I do or how many tweets where I'm chuffed to have been doing that, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, it's always tinged with that. But I actually think, and this is something that I've only recently in the past couple of weeks reconciled with, is that that feeling of failure is something that I I think is why oh god this sounds really really lame but I think it's why the stuff's good yeah it's why the show's good and why people have really responded to good grief and I think it will be why happy hour is is hopefully really good and people really respond to it but and then that's it and I'm not going to do anything about grief after happy hour are you sure (laughs) wait and see if you're third show (laughs) my third show is called grief the return (laughs) third show is called everyone's alive (laughs) and we're just talking about living it's all about life so happy hour is about Ollie then and happy hour is about is basically about Ollie it's a sort of letter to him and it's definitely you know another comedy theatre show yeah was and he it, depressed? Was he like when you say you knew? Was it is it kind of one of those phone calls and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I knew that that person was. It was it was that the the oh, it was a phone call I'd heard in my head before. Wow, well, yeah, which is the worst thing to say mm. because no, it's I know like, what you mean. There's... It's something that in the back of my head I'd always thought one day I might get a call about him like that. Yeah. Which is such a bizarre thing to say. I don't think. <laughs> I think we have. I think everybody has some friends. Yeah. Who you worry about mm. and you try and talk to, but there's a part of you that's like, I hope you're okay, um, and that's all I can do is keep hoping you're okay. Yeah. So. And and that's it. And I think you know, me and Ollie had a real gap in between graduating and and sort of staying in touch. Really grateful, actually, that I spoke to him. You know, he called me on my dad's birthday, which was just sort of just before it happened and and I'm really grateful that I had that because I think if I hadn't spoken to him and there had been this sort of like six, seven month gap of no contact, I think I'd be quite beaten up now Mm. because he did speak to me a lot when we were at uni about his mental health and he'd struggled since his teens and you know there are a series of reasons why I think he isn't here today and I think one of them is a sort of um, systematic failure mm. and you know I think a lot about you know the importance of having early intervention schemes and projects in place to sort of flag up this when it happens in in teenagers and in kids which is why it's so scary that there isn't bereavement services for kids like you and yeah, me at that age yeah. because we're the most vulnerable ones yeah. and the fact that there isn't very good you know, child and mental health adolescent services, and they are really getting ravaged by cuts, is bizarre to me because you would solve so much of the young adult suicide rate by putting time and investment and infrastructure into 
early intervention when kids are 15, 16, 17, 18. Which as we, you know, as we both experience it, being 15 is, is shit anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like, and add on anything to that, like any family loss or yeah. any vulnerability. But I think it's an access thing as well. Like there are some parts of this country where there are no services. Yeah. There are no outreach plans. Mm. You know, if you live in a certain rural, you know, it's it really is a postcode lottery yeah. to an extent. You know, Ollie left London. I didn't say that, actually, but, you know, Ollie left London. He left where we all studied. He went back to Chichester, went back to his hometown, left a really good job in the media because he couldn't afford to stay in London and mm. ended up working in Clark's shoe shop in his local town and just... All that happened was a series of limitations on his ambition, limitations on help and limitations on what he wanted to achieve and do in life. And it strips you of everything. And I think that's why, you know, I made a BBC Three series, documentary series, sort of about Ollie and, and about this, because I do think that there are areas in this country where the services are so depleted that doesn't shock me that there's high suicide rates yeah. by the coast because if you're you know there are some places in this country where if you try to attempt to take your own life you've got to wait six seven hours for a crisis team to get to you or for anyone to to if you've said i nearly overdo or I th- i'm feeling like i might you know mm. do whatever i don't want to go into like methods of stuff but like if you're at that point there are certain parts where it's like, okay, can you just cling on for six hours and put the telly on, put your feet up, relax, and we'll come and help you, and we'll come and see if you need sectioning. Like, oh, God. And that's the reality for mm. people, and I think it's a real shame that that reality is often really smoked out by the general conversation about mental health in the media, which is like, it's so important to talk, it's so important to open mm. up, let's all talk, let's all open up. And it's like, there's no fucking point of encouraging certain people, certain groups, especially young men who are, you know, the biggest, single biggest killer yeah. of young men is suicide. There's no point in having this big clarion call, media wank fest for everyone to open up and talk. If people are going to open up and talk, get into their GP table, pluck up all that courage, yeah. and he's just going to lean over and be like, yeah, 12 weeks, 18 weeks, five months. We might be no, able like, to help you, yeah. We might, like, 12 weeks is too long Mm, and 12 weeks is is good like and I think that for me is just something that I don't if you're going to speak about mental health and you're going to speak about depression these things that are unfortunately leading and contributing to the high suicide rates that we are having in certain groups then you also have to talk about the systematic failures in place that are literally letting them happen Mm. and unfortunately I think the media more and more the more that mental health becomes zeitgeisty and the more topical it's become and especially in the last two years to 18 months I've really noticed this there's just this erasure of government accountability and systematic accountability and I think that when you start doing that you miss the solution I can't feel sad about it because I feel angry first yeah and I feel angry about these cuts and I feel angry that a lot of places are getting off scot-free and that the general mainstream conversation is all about talking and like I get I also also totally understand which I you know I find 
I have found patronising recently when I've had this sort of thrown back against me when people have been like, actually, well, it is really important to talk to them. It is important mm. to know that. It's like, I fucking know that. I've been an ambassador for Calm for five years. <laughs> I'm on years. board with like, the talking. I'm on board with that. But it's more than that. Mm. You know? I think anger and grief is a really important thing. I've talked about this before that I know when I was 15, I was angry. I was extremely angry. And I found mm. nobody wanted to deal with that. Everyone wanted me, they were happy if I was like, oh, my dad died. That was fine. But if I was like, my fucking dad died and I'm fucked off about yeah. it, everyone was like, that's, and it's really, again, I think that's what you're saying is really interesting because everyone wants to talk as long as the way you're talking is okay. And it's as long okay, as the way you're yeah. talking fits into my uh, view of grief or, mm. you know, ma- young male suicide, I want to see the sad story and then go, oh, but they talked. End of conversation. And yeah. I know, ang- I say this a lot to people who've, who've just lost people. Like, go, you will be angry. And then, no, no, I'm, I'm sad. You're like, no, you're fucking angry. And that, mm. that is okay. And people write out anger like it, like it isn't a huge part of it. But that's it. It's that's, huge. You literally hit, you, the way you've explained it, I might also, ju- I might just like copy and paste <laughs> it because that's it. But me being angry and me saying, this is the reason and this is the reason and this is the reason and this needs to stop and me being like visibly worked up mm. is too much yeah I think people it, they find it very threatening mm. especially if they haven't been through it or they haven't lost anyone to suicide or understand I think people just they get overwhelmed with it rather than understanding that mate that's just it yeah. that is as much as the sadness and anger often hides Sadness. I definitely was hiding behind a wall yeah. of anger, but I was also really angry that mm. this had happened to me. Yeah, I was just like pissed off. I was like, "Why? Yeah. What's this bullshit I have to deal with? Why has my one been found a bit too late? Yeah, like, why has my one been exactly?" So good and I think that's again, you make people feel guilty when you don't acknowledge the anger. Like, I have, I have a thing. I had a line that I cut out of good grief that I wrote about two, three years ago, and it was something like hell hath no fury like a kid breathe yeah. <laughs> it's really awful line I love it but the I sentiment of it like definitely like That's I so genuinely true. think there is nothing that I've gone through in my life more empowering mm, than yeah. losing my dad yeah and losing Molly if I'm really honest I think that's why good grief has done well mm. in the sense of like I just was like I'm not gonna let this not go well mm felt so ambitious and so motivated and so driven by those experiences and I still do and I think they are the reason why you know the BBC 3 series even happened or why I've been able to sort of like make things that are honest and are that because I'm just very driven by those experiences and I do think that there's such an amazing sense of empowerment that you can get from that anger in a way I mean it's debilitating at times but then it's also like Fuck it. Why shouldn't I yeah. have a series on TV? <laughs> well, Why can, shouldn't I do this? It channels things, I think. I think if you're lucky, you learn to control the anger yeah. and you learn to pour it into gigging and performing or writing or whatever, you know, Any you're not creative. creative yeah, whatever or, you want to yeah. do. But I think, unfortunately, there are people who it overwhelms them or they don't let it out. Yeah. And again, I think because everyone's like, oh, don't be angry. Whereas, yeah, I agree with you. What my dad dying at 15 made me extremely powerful like because mm. I was like for a while and it goes it doesn't always stay yeah. but for a while I was like I couldn't care what that literally what anyone thinks of me so I when I took my first Edinburgh show I had hit rock bottom like I did the show and the show was coming I guess without an ego because you're like I'm just here to do the show Yeah. I don't care about anything else because I know what matters and what doesn't matter Yeah. 
and it that's hard to maintain that because it's like it is like you're on fire you can't be mm. on fire you sometimes have to you know it burns out I do think it does it can give you a lot of power like you said em- empowerment and it can mm. drive you to do lots of things I wonder if you have the same thing that I do which is I just want something to come out of it I just want something yeah. to come out I don't want it to be like well that was oh my dad died and that was it it's like no something it was so shit and I'm so angry about it that I want something, something should do something something should happen because of this because otherwise what's the fucking point, point. of it yeah. yeah yeah I think yeah completely I definitely felt, I think that's that's the reason I'm sad in front of you because <laughs> I was like this can't be this shit yeah and I just get over it and put it in a box yeah. and forget it and become a estate agent. <laughs> like, and you know what? There are a few people that have done that, yeah. and that's fine. If it works for you, great. If it but... works for you, cool. But for me, I just was like, there's no way. I was like dying to speak about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I, and, and, and I, I say that in the sense of like, I think I literally was so depressed and so sad that if I didn't get it out of me then I would have been in a really bad place. Mm, that's definitely how I feel. Like, it was a public service that I talk about it because yeah. for my for my sake. Like, yeah. Otherwise, I would have exploded mm. and gone mad. Like, I had... And I've talked about this with Katie Wicks, so I went the other way of doing characters. She's my all-time favourite person, oh, by the way. She's amazing. I really like her. She, but she was saying about the way it comes <laughs> out in your work. And because I did these characters, like, I didn't realise that all my characters basically had dead dads. But they would never be mm. specifically say, but it was like, or they'd have, you know, I talked about before the, the magician's daughter, the, the magician, she was always calling her dad to come in the room and he never came in. And again, all these things that are, now you look at them and you go, oh my God, I guess somebody was not okay. But yeah, it comes out in these different ways it, yeah, because it has to. It manifests itself in all sorts of weird, strange, yeah. bizarre but also brilliant ways sometimes. Yeah. Like, have you found doing good grief that you must have had like reactions like I'm giving you? Did you sort of yeah. reach to this grief community, which I've recently discovered? That's basically been my sort of my favourite part. Yeah, because I definitely think that there's something really beautiful about grown men coming up to you after a show, blubbering their eyes yeah. out and crying, and there's something about that communal discussion and that celebration that's for me what good grief's about it's about celebrating life yeah and and actually it's it's not you know for one it's not really kind of dead dad show in the sense of i mean obviously marketing wise it would be but, <laughs> you know it's it's actually it's much more narcissistic than that like it's all about me and my nan like yeah. my dad's in it for about 20 seconds <laughs> he's gone like it's about the importance of people coming together and celebrating someone they've gone and not being fit like fearful of upsetting one another after yeah. that and and there's something really lovely and it is my you know it's my favorite thing whereby my favorite bit about the whole project has been people reaching out and people sort of telling me their funny hilarious awkward things that yeah. happen or like the woman that came in Leamington Spa a couple of weeks ago and told me about how when her dad died the cleaner outside the hospital was singing oh happy day like literally <laughs> mopping up outside the ward like, outside his bedroom oh and his mum her mum sat out and went will you just shut the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> poor cleaner like, and what? Poor like what and like there's been all sorts of things and I really want people to you know that's been the nicest thing is people sharing their awkward mm. funny stories about there's grief. so much that, I mean that's why I started the podcast like I would talk to people 
you would share your awkward story, but you'd do it in a kind of like, oh, don't tell anyone else that we're laughing about it. Yeah. Ollie's funeral was weird because I remember looking around and I remember being like, why the fuck are you sat so close to the front? You need to, Dolly didn't even like you. Yeah, and I, I think that's funny with like, young people. There's always like, you didn't, they didn't like you, you by the way. Like, like, I'm really sorry, Shannon, but <laughs> Ollie thought you were like really clingy. <laughs> I've changed the name there. Good work. Shannon does exist. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange one. You know, it's the thing about it and the sort of dark humour of it all and the laughing side of it all is that, like, it's the same as crying. And I've sort of yeah. always said this, laughing and crying are the exact same thing. Physiologically, what they do biologically to your body is the same. Like, yeah. they have the same physical, symptomatic, like, like results. You know, it's that, like juddery stomach feeling and then mm. like water coming out your eyes and yeah, like and, yeah. and like you know <laughs> I often say it's sort of my favourite line of the show but like when I cry it sounds like Jimmy Carr's laugh and <laughs> <laughs> people can read into that <laughs> however way they want that's what I used to find when you know in your, your pit of grief and you're like uh, 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 and you're like oh my god what is that noise like <laughs> I would start laughing at myself. Oh my god, me and my mum always used to laugh yeah. at how ridiculous we said it when we were crying. I remember you once so <laughs> I remember once the Richard and Judy show coming on <laughs> Channel 4. And something happened again when we started crying and I went, <laughs> like that is so funny. <laughs> just sort of taking the piss out of each other's cry. Oh my god. I remember we'd cry. Something had happened. My mum, I've got to say, is the best person in the world to grieve with <laughs> because she is so, like, unadulteratedly honest about yeah. things and honest with people. And all the women in my family in particular mm. are real, you know, all the women in my family are sort of working class grafters. I think, you know, that's it. Having that embracing of being in a shit situation but being able to laugh still. In. I think it's massively massively helpful yeah completely. <laughs> my mum's from a very working class background like east end and then essex being able to laugh about it is massive i mean i always i have talked about this before like it's like my mum i'm always like and then sometimes it's okay to cry don't cry just get on with it get yeah. on with it and like you are allowed to also cry but i think it does help to to have people in your family you're talking about like my mum and my brother and me always talked about it it was very open mm. but again I feel like we couldn't have not talked about it Yeah. and I find it incredible when I speak to people who go oh you know I, my, we've never spoken about it since I'm like how like I physically yeah. don't understand how. how it's not spilling out of your mouth but then I'm a very talk obviously yeah. <laughs> I'm a talker and some people just don't I think that must be well I'm sure you deal with it in different ways but I think it must be really hard if you feel you can't talk about it to your your mum or your dad depending on who's left you know I, I think it's a situation one because I think it's like two things if you feel like you can't talk about it then that's awful yeah but then I do also think and this is sort of my issue with the sort of mental health talking zeitgeist is that actually for some people talking about it isn't their solution it's not their go to it's took me a long time to understand not everyone wants to talk yeah (laughs) and I'm 34 and, and that's still like a healthy thing yeah and it's a strange one because I think you know the the media's emphasis on getting everyone to talk and speak up about mental health slightly just misses that sometimes Mm. for some people it is like just going on a run or for some people it is and it doesn't mean that they're like bottling it all up inside it means that they're getting a release in a different way my husband is not a talker well he he's been forced to by me (laughs) but like it's like he when he he lost his mum and his dad and it took us a long time to work out 
how I could help him because I'm all the talk, talk until you burst your, like, till your eyes yeah. pop out your head, basically. Yeah. that and Talk he, until we can get a Chinese on the sofa. Yeah, exactly. And it's all fine. Yeah. And he very much was like, I don't always want to talk. And it took me, that was a big lesson for me to go, mm. oh, he just wants to go and sit and play guitar. And that actually is his way of dealing yeah. with it. Because I was like, if you're not talking, you're not grieving. Yeah. Because I agree with you, there is this, such a pressure on talking. Whereas actually what it is, what they guess what they're missing is it's, it's just support talking yeah, yeah. isn't is the wrong word it should be everyone should support each other it's more like not having somebody in the same house to talk to but having somebody in the same house in the other room that can yeah. help you out if you need it yeah like and i you know that sort of analogy i think is it's like you don't want somebody sat on the end of the bed shaking you to talk mm. but you want someone who's like gonna be there when you need them when you feel the urge and you know what like last night we might as well talk about it because yeah. we're recording this like the day, the day after. after london bridge attack yeah mm. and and you know it's my first sort of night moving back to london oh god and just sort of felt incredibly sort of strange and i was like living like in the flat on my own in the sort of new flat wow. like new bed and i was <laughs> a bit like i could hear loads of sirens yeah. just everywhere even like all up and down camden high street like and I just called my friend Phoebe and I clearly woke her up and I was like, I'm really sorry, but I just like literally want to talk to somebody. Yeah. And she was like, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> and, like, and I was like, I know that you're around the corner and if I need to go in, even though it's like nowhere near, but I think it's that sort of stuff is so important because if you don't yeah. have it, you can very quickly escalate yourself into feeling a sense of panic or a sense mm. of sadness or a sense of fear and like, and and you know, I wasn't anywhere near London. Well, I, I was near, but I wasn't anywhere <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, directly yeah. near. I used to live on St Thomas Street in London oh, Bridge, where God. it all happened. And I, th- and, I, and I also think it's like those incidents where something tragic has happened. If you've ever experienced a loss or, or a tragic loss or anything like, you know, they are you. F- you feel that like, mm. oh God, like I. And I agree with you. Every you know. Everything that's happened, all these awful attacks in London and all over the world and in Manchester, every time that happens, if you have been through grief, I think you do. it does wake up everything yeah. in you. And I think that's important as well to remember you don't have to have been near it and it can still remind you of losing someone yeah. and that might make you sad that day and to sort of, you know, just be aware of that. But I think we. I was talking to one of the other podcasts, Kaylee Llewellyn, and she was saying her best friend when she lost six members of her family over a year. Wow. And she was saying her best friend, Matt, there was this awful night where he just sat next to her and she was like we were just both looking at the same wall but at least I wasn't looking at the wall by myself yeah. and I think that again it's that thing of there's been plenty of times I've picked up my phone to call certain people and I haven't always called them but just to go oh I, I know it's three yeah. o'clock in the morning and I know they'd go oh, it's alright yeah okay talk what do you need yeah. and people have done that to me and it, yeah you're right just to know there is that emergency cord I suppose yeah. isn't it? that you sh- everyone needs that I think it's a, it's a it's a really you know if you've got that then you can sort of um I don't know it's a strange one I was about to say something really bleak <laughs> bleak is fine it's it's bleak cuz it it sort of reminds me of of Ollie in the sense that you know you think like I know Ollie could have called yeah. any of us in that moment where mm. he was feeling particularly vulnerable or distressed or whatever and 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 you know it's a hard one because quite often when you hear from people who have attempted suicide and they've thankfully survived 
they often say it's like I know I could have called someone but I just didn't I didn't feel like I I wanted to and I'm like do you know what if you ever feel like the inclination that like you know then just do it (laughs) just like do it if you know you can call someone just do it just do it and I and I and I I don't, and I'm not going to say necessarily that that's the right answer, but for for someone who's been like bereaved by that and been bereaved by someone who just didn't, in that last week of their life, didn't reach out and didn't do it, yeah. I'm just like do it, just fucking do it, because you never know. Because if you reach out to like two or three people and it still doesn't work, then like fine, do whatever, <laughs> but like just fucking do it. Don't not do it. Don't not reach. Don't look yeah. through your phone book and think that anyone. Is it ever going to be if you're feeling on the the whole spectrum of distress, if you're Mm. feeling a little bit pranged out because there's a horrible attack like in your city or if you're feeling completely shit about, you know, a massive breakdown in your life, just like fucking do it because somebody being woken up at night or somebody having to like leave, like it's not, it doesn't mean anything. It's not disruptive. Like, and I think... I think if you've maybe, if you haven't had that experience of being the person who's called... You don't realise how much you don't mind. That's what I... Yeah, yeah, when yeah. I, when it changed for me, when I stopped being the person ringing and I got the, being the person who was rung, and I realised I used to always feel so guilty if I rang someone in a state. Yeah. Oh, I fucked up. I'm such an idiot. Why did I call them? Yeah. But when you're rung, you're like, oh, it's really fine. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I really don't mind. <laughs> I love you and it's fine. I like, think 99.9% of people yeah, would literally be like... This is Fine. totally like because you can tell from a voice when when a voice needs something. Yeah, and if a voice is like, "Oh, it's bored," and it's three in the morning, you're like, "Fuck off." Yeah. If a voice is like, "Hey," you're like, "Oh, sure, of course, I'll drop yeah. anything." Yeah, because of course we're humans. I yeah. want to be here for you. It's never annoying mm. if you need help. No, it's, it's never, never annoying. annoying unless <laughs> <laughs> unless like. I don't know if Strictly's on and I've just sat down and got the baby seat. No, never. It's never. Like. So you, I'm writing my Edinburgh show. Don't interrupt me. Which I love writing. No one, no one. Any, if you're writing a show and someone rings, you're like, "Hello, yeah, I'll talk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, come round. I've got five hours. I thought you were busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. Come round. Come <coughs> I'm busy. I need to interview you. Yeah. So you're, you're finishing Good Grief this month. Yeah. And how do you feel about finishing it? Do you feel sad or do you feel like it's time? I definitely feel like it's time. Because, mm. I mean, I re- recorded the interview with my nan June 2014. Wow. And, you know, it's been a steady on and off fixture in my life now, mm. you know, which is bizarre. I'm glad it's over because, for me, I feel like my identity is now becoming grief. Yes. Yeah, I worry about that as well. Like we said. Yeah. But I think it's funny because I hated being the girl whose dad died. And now I'm the girl who does a podcast about her dad dying. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I mean, I haven't. But that was it with me. Yeah. Like I've now become the boys doing a show. But like, yeah. and, and so, so it's bizarre. And I'm worried that because the sort of new show is similarly about grief. I suppose I've come to terms with this a little bit of like, if you can be the person who talks about it, perhaps you have to. Yeah. Like, even though I I know you feel sometimes like, oh, God, is that what anyone's going to talk to me about for the rest of my life? Yeah. And then you go, actually, I'm okay with it. I can talk about this. I'm obviously communicating in a way that some other people find hard. So maybe it's... Maybe it's... I, I, s- I said this in an interview the other day about the BBC Three series, and someone was like, why are you making this? And I, and and it sounds a little bit egotistical, but I was like, because I think I'm the right person. Yeah, to, yeah. Because I think that I am someone who's experienced it in different ways, and and like, I'm still here, yeah. and I've like coped with it, and I feel like I've got a toolkit of and opinions and sort of my own approach that I think can help other people, and I can see where other people are going wrong, mm. and I do think that comes from 
my sort of experiences of calm and my experiences with my dad and Ollie. I've I've tried to make a show that is entertaining for people so that they want to come, but also like enables them to feel like they can be less scared but also in a way that I never want it to be too prescriptive with people. Mm. I never want it to be like, this is the way to grieve. This is the way to do it. You must talk. You must do this. I wanted it to be like, here's loads of different ways. Yeah. And whatever your way is, is right, as long as you're looking after yourself and as long as you feel like you're supported. Everyone experiences it completely differently. There's no right way, but we do all experience it. Mm. And... I really wanted for my nan's story to sort of shine through it as well, and that will be the hardest thing to to stop. To I let think, go of, yeah. Is I love, I love performing a show, and just looking to my left, and there's a massive projector screen, and she's on it, <laughs> and she's being like wise and sort of beautiful and funny, and I want is to she see... in happy hour at all? No. I think you're going to need to print a picture of her and, like, have it with you backstage. <laughs> so, like, she's still with you. Carriad, when you see it, there is a picture of her <laughs> in a certain moment. Yeah, I was going to say. Maybe yeah. this is a nice, like, sort of ending point because I do think, like, it is about, when it comes to grief and when it comes to mental health, it's about finding those solutions that work for you. Yeah. And, like, I met up with all these sort of men that are taking their mental health into their own hands in quite weird, different, wonderful ways. And some of them it's going cold water swimming in a lock every week and freezing their balls off. And <laughs> then others it's, like, dragging up. And then, and it's just, like, the biggest spectrum of people realising that outside of talking and outside of the NHS... We all have the tools to yeah. support each other and we can all find them. And some of them are weird and some of them are just community. Some of them are just coming together. Mm. We as a society would, would meet up, we'd meet up in places of worship, we'd sing together, we'd speak together. Mm. And we've like gradually, the sort of more, I call it the more Netflix the world to become <laughs> and the more you can get whatever you want whenever you want it. At, by yourself, by alone, yourself, at home. Alone, yeah. you know, and isolating. You of course you're going to start saying me before we but like for me the whole solution to people feeling crap with grief and people feeling crap with mental health is to say we before me mm. and I think that's my sort of like mantra is that no matter how much of a sort of individual performer and ego and narcissist I become who knows like you have to say we first because we is just like human nature and as long as you don't lose that then you can sort of get through anything I think Jack thank you so much for talking to me thanks very much Carrie. that's alright you can find Jack on Twitter at Jack Rook and you can find his new show Happy Hour at the Underbelly this Edinburgh thank you for listening to Griefcast I've been Carrie Lloyd you can find me on Twitter at Lady Carriad or you can tweet at The Griefcast or email me thegriefcast at gmail.com. Music is provided by The Glue Ensemble and you can find them at thegluensemble.com. Thank you for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.